I do not think that the right way uh, to confront climate change is by treating it as a moral issue uh, or as an issue that is beyond economics. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program. We've had the pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past three years a significant number of truly outstanding economists who have carried out important work, often path-breaking work, in the realm of environment, energy, and resource economics. And today is certainly no exception, because I'm joined by Michael Greenstone, the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Thank you for having me, Rob. It's my delight to be here. So before we talk about your research, and for that matter, your current thinking about environmental and climate change policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. Let's start with where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Chicago, about three blocks from where I'm sitting right now. So, and are you in Hyde Park? I'm in Hyde Park. Uh Uh-huh. And so does that mean that primary school and high school were both in Chicago? Yes, I went to the Chicago Public Schools for K through 8, and then I went to the University of Chicago has a Uh, elementary school and high school, and I went there for high school. And does that still exist, that University of Chicago High School? Yeah, the lab school. The lab school, I see. I have kids there now. Is that right? Uh, So you you graduate from high school, and then did you immediately go on to Swarthmore, or did you take some time off? I went right to Swarthmore. And you graduated with a degree in economics. I noted from the year of your graduation... Uh, and the location that not only was it the same institution that Marty Weitzman did his undergraduate degree, but it was just about 30 years earlier that he had done his degree there. Indeed, Marty and I uh, discovered that. I don't think either of us knew that. And you may not remember this, but uh, a turning point or, you know, big moment in my career was when you generous, you and Marty generously invited me to come give a seminar when I was mm-hmm a postdoc uh, at UC Berkeley, Uh, and, you know, halfway through the seminar, maybe at the end, I was like, oh, maybe I can do this, Uh, (laughs) uh, and it gave me, you know, confidence that I I certainly was not, uh, was not abundant at that time, and I, I think in that visit, I... Marty and I made that uh, made that connection. Oh, I see. That's great. Well, I can validate that you definitely can do it. Uh, so you graduate from Swarthmore in 1991. Yeah, having uh, failed to make it to the NBA, which was my goal when I went to Swarthmore, but that didn't work out. Are you serious? Oh, I didn't think it was a super realistic goal, but uh-huh. I devoted uh, you know an obscene amount of time uh, to basketball. Oh, you did. Yeah. And now you graduate. Did you? immediately go on to Princeton or once again did my question is did you take time off like a lot of college students I didn't really know what I wanted to do mm-hmm. uh, and it's less true now but like law school was kind of a default at that period of time that's right also when I graduated college I'll yeah. Say. yeah and so I actually applied to law school my senior year I took the LSATs the whole thing so did I uh, and I got in uh, and I deferred and I took uh, 
a job in Washington, kind of at a, at a, a think tank, thinking, I got to figure this law school thing out. Right. Uh, do, do I really want to go? Why would I want to go? And basically halfway through the first year of that job, I decided uh, I can't affirmatively answer that I want to, that, that I have some reason that I should or would like to go to law school. Uh, and I then quit my job. Uh, and actually there was this super, you know, life has these forks in the road. Right. Uh, and I did two things. One, I, uh, apply, I, I figured out how to take math classes at Drexel university in Philadelphia, where mm-hmm. I could do that, uh, to get myself ready to apply to graduate school for economics. Or there was this very high intervention kind of diversion program for, uh, criminally, for teenagers involved in the criminal justice system, they were kind of trying to keep them out of jail, like in a very, uh-huh. very high intensive probation in inner city Baltimore. And I got that job and I was completely torn. Should I go to Drexel and take math classes or should I take uh, this job interacting huh. several times a day with uh, kids who were ensnared in, in the criminal justice system? And anyway, I, I went to Drexel, but I have often wondered what would have been. Right. No, there are those forks in the road. And interesting about the law school, you know, myself, I was having a hard time deciding between a PhD in economics and law school. So I I initially took the easy route in decision making, uh, do a joint degree, do them both. Oh, I didn't Uh, know that. Yes. But after one year in the economics program, it wasn't necessarily because of love of economics. It was, I don't think I want to do that many years of school. And so I proceeded only with the PhD in economics. Now, yours was at Princeton. Am I correct that you worked with Orly Ashenfelter? Orly Ashenfelter and David Card. And David Card. one of my uh, thesis advisors. And what was your thesis? Uh, It was on, so I thought, I went there kind of, you know, my alternate path in inner city Baltimore. I went there, I thought, for sure to be a labor economist Uh and to work on questions of poverty and welfare and things like that. and for the life of me, I could not find a question where I felt like I could gain uh, a lot of traction on it in a way that I, at least I would find convincing. And so I was casting about for a dissertation topic, uh, and I kind of bumped into uh, environmental questions, and uh, and then I found this really what I thought was clever, or not clever, but like interesting feature of the Clean Air Act, which was that some parts of the country were regulated right. more heavily than others. And so I basically wrote a dissertation exploiting this non-attainment attainment designations of the Clean Air Act and using that to look at what happens to the costs of what, what are what are the costs for manufacturers who uh, face the heavier regulation and what are some of the benefits in terms of uh, reductions in air pollution and then the degree to which that makes it into housing prices and maybe you can infer mm-hmm. people's willingness to pay. So that, right. that was my dissertation. So you, you went into the PhD program as a potential labor economist and you very much came out of it as an environmental economist then. Absolutely. Uh, as Orly still likes to joke to this day, because yeah. in the Princeton department is, uh, it's a little like there's islands. And so like I was definitely in the labor group. Uh, and the group there is called the industrial relations section. And Orly to this day likes to say, well, the thing is, Michael, you're the greatest environmental economist that the industrial relations section has ever produced. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The understated part is I'm the only one. Right. (laughs) I can hear Orly saying that. I, I, I communicate with him probably 
two or three times every week because we're co-founders and co-editors of the Journal of Wine Economics, which indeed. is a very different topic. <laughs> yes, but, uh, so I, so you you graduate uh, from Princeton, and then, as I recall, you took on a Robert Wood Johnson uh, fellowship at UC Berkeley. Was that right away, or is yeah? Again? So I so I can I think with the. The healingness of time, what happened is, I thought I was going to go on the job market in my fifth year, like a lot of students, uh, and, and the norm has now switched kind of to six, Yeah. but uh, at the time, the norm was five. I gave kind of a spectacularly terrible practice job talk in October, uh, and I think Orly and David both, I think they were a little taken aback and a little horrified at how bad I did. Uh, and, uh, but, and, you know, I owe them a tremendous amount for this. I think they both saw that I could do something, uh, interesting. And so more or less, they arranged, uh, for me to get this postdoc at UC Berkeley where David actually had now moved at that point. Right. And so, uh, and that was, uh, so yeah, anyways, I did that postdoc for two years. Uh, and in that period, that's when you and Marty invited me to come. That's and, right. Yeah. Give a talk. Right. And you were ahead of your time because although at that point um back around what is that 1998-99 doing a postdoc was unusual in economics obviously common in the natural sciences but nowadays as you well know that's become part of the norm of many absolutely top students even if they get into uh, an offer of an assistant professorship they'll want to delay it for two years to do a postdoctoral fellowship somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say, I'll say that it was a warehouse where I could try to rehabilitate myself after giving a bad job talk, practice job talk, and like focus on how to give a better one and work on my research. But it was not, I would say, a, a very prestigious thing to do at the time. But now, like, yeah. it, but I'll say in hindsight, by the way, it was, I don't know if it was my best job ever, but it was an awesome job. Like, right. my only job was to work on my research, and it was. I really, really, uh, I loved that and, you know, uh, in many ways wish for that to happen again. Well, it, it paid off because then I believe you accepted a position as an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago. That, that, that is what happened. Uh, and that was really wonderful too. And that, and which was a homecoming for you, as you've already said, but at some point, um, to my delight, uh, for geographic reasons, um, you moved to uh, work in Cambridge, Massachusetts as the th- 3M Professor of Environmental Economics at MIT. How did that come about? Well, I had the two-year head start, and it wasn't really counting against my tenure clock, it seemed. But and so uh-huh. in my, uh, I guess in my second year at Chicago, MIT had called and said, would you like to come for a lateral move? And it just mm-hmm. seemed like too disruptive we'd gotten settled uh, we're trying to have children things like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then a year later they called again and said well would you come for tenure uh, and mm-hmm. we were actually uh, my wife's time was trying we were trying to decide uh, and uh, she got held up at gunpoint oh my uh, god like two days before we were supposed to decide and I was like oh I guess we've decided yes indeed <laughs> so uh, in any event uh I love both places. I loved then both places, and I love both places now. I think they're uh, two just terrific places uh, 
to do research and the students are terrific and so uh it, i was happy to go and sad to leave at the same time and and you took on a significant leadership position at mit but i i think even more leadership in terms of running programs in your return to the university of chicago is that isn't that right yes that's right uh i came back to run the energy policy institute uh, mm -hmm. along with normal faculty job stuff and uh that was uh there bob zimmer was the president then and he uh it just felt like we were cut from the same cloth he had this uh and you know this is something that you have been a, a real pioneer on is making sure that ideas don't get stuck inside dusty journals mm -hmm. and that they get out there into the outside world and that had something I always struggled with about academia is, mm -hmm. was this a game for me and 10 of my friends? And, you know, could I get their approval or pat on the back about work I'd done? And for sure, I want that. I value their judgment mm -hmm. and things like that. But it just, I knew even before I went to graduate school, like I couldn't, that couldn't be my life. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was constantly kind of scratching and clawing and searching for a way to engage with the uh, outside world. Uh, and there were some ways to do that at MIT, and then it seemed like there were even greater opportunities uh, to do that. Chicago and it was just too hard to turn down. And then what validates, I think, the importance to you of making sure that your work, your contributions are not wholly within academia, but affect the wider world is that along the way you took time to become the chief economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration. So again, at what point did that happen? You were already back. You're already back at Chicago when no, that happened. No, so I no? was still at MIT, and so actually, you know, I was very desperate to prove that I could do research at a, a high level, and I felt like as much as I wanted to get engaged in the interactions in the outside world uh, when I was an assistant professor and just after your tenure, uh, I just felt like I had to prove my chops. Uh, and so I kind of sat down and did that and wrote papers that go in journals that people like and things like that and hopefully expand understanding about the world. And then this opportunity came in 2009. I was still at MIT, or really 2008, I guess, after the election. Uh, and uh, it felt like, okay, well, I know a couple things now, uh, and maybe this is an opportunity to kind of explore this other side. And so uh, I, I went there. I learned a ton from going there. I learned a ton, which I think probably you had already discovered a lot of it, uh, on how to communicate uh, in ways that were not a turnoff. You know, the, and you could see very quickly that economists could get the volume turned to zero on them. Uh, by talking in ways that we do. Uh, and so that was really, really informative. And uh, anyway, so I did that for a year while I was, uh, I, I took a year break uh, from MIT to do that. And I came back from that thinking, whoa, like there is an opportunity, there's a space in between academia and the policy world. And it's like, it's not really being filled. Like you are serving an important role in that, Rob, but like the, there's a, it's, just, it's not filled and then like when things don't get filled it gets filled by people who have agendas and not yeah. by like yeah. uh, uh, not by evidence as you and I might think of evidence uh, and it just felt like that's a mistake it's like we owe that 
maybe to ourselves, maybe to the world, it's owed in one way or another. Like we get to have these crazy jobs where we can study the world. You know, when I say things like that in front of my high school friends, like they, they think I'm crazy. But like we get to do that, don't we owe something back? And it seemed, it just, that's one of the reasons I went to Chicago. It felt like that was a better way to try and pay it forward a little bit. So of that year of government service in the Obama administration, um, can you say what was, was there a, a single aspect that you got involved in uh, a single event that you would characterize as the high point or the low point or or both yeah uh, so I Obama had run and then it's a little hard to think back on this but uh, McCain had also run on yep. there being a cap and trade for CO2 yeah uh, and so like that was uh, well that sounds kind of like outer space history right now uh that was kind of plain vanilla activity that was clear that I wanted to work on. Uh, and there's like lots of very, very subtle and important details. And I thought I would go there and be technocrat and try and iron some of those things out along with other people who were there, including several of your former students. Right. Uh, and then in February, 2009, like, you know, I've been there a couple of weeks. We we're in the great recession. We we're losing, you know, it was like you're walking to work and back and forth to work with like, weights on your shoulders like the economy was losing 700,000 jobs a month no one knew what where the bottom would come or where how it would come and I thought to myself whoa I don't think this is going to work we're going to pass a bill that increases energy prices in the middle of all this like doesn't there have to be a plan b uh and the president had been very clear that carbon was a, a a top goal and so I began to just like scuffle around and you know didn't take too much digging until you realized regulation was plan b and there was this gaping problem in regulation which is uh that the benefits were all measured in tons of co2 and the costs were in dollars and very obviously dollars are always going to beat tons of co2 uh and so you needed a way to convert the benefits that is the tons of co2 uh into dollars and uh the U.S. government had no coherent way to do that. You had like the EPA effectively saying that a ton of CO2 was invaluable, I don't know, infinite or something. And you had the Department of Transportation, it's not today's Department of Transportation, saying that it was basically zero because they wanted more driving. Uh, and so I had this idea, why don't, what, shouldn't the government have a coherent and uniform social cost of carbon? And uh, I suggested it to Cass Sunstein at lunch one day. And we decided uh, to set off on this like journey to set a social cost of carbon for the U.S. government. And we uh, co-ran an interagency process. And one thing led to another. And there was a U.S. government social cost of carbon at the end. Which is very much an ongoing story because, of course, the Biden administration, as you well know, um, more or less reinstated the Obama era number. I think adjusting for inflation, it was $51 a ton, said they're going to come up with a new number. Looks like they'll be lowering the discount rate from 3% to 2%, other adjustments with the actual biophysical models and i'm sure you're aware you were probably helping with the rff uh coordinated study that l is looking at a number more on the order of 200 dollars a ton now I, I actually uh the rfs group has been a, like a terrific uh enterprise and I, i'm actually like co-leading a, a different enterprise which oh okay got the same goal called the climate impact lab 
Uh, and that was at least partially born out of my experience uh, in, in the Obama White House, where I left there thinking, hey, I kind of think we got this right in terms of describing the frontier of our understanding of uh, climate damages. But boy, could we do a ton better. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, Bill Nordhaus, who had set the foundation for the way we think about the problem and everything uh, through his DICE model, is enormously influential and rightly so. You know, Bill was stuck with like crappy computers from the 90s uh, and not a lot of data. And I, I saw this intellectual arbitrage of uh, this explosion of uh, data and improvement in computing power that was taking place in other fields in economics. And I was like, we can do this in climate. And so along with uh, Trevor Hauser, Solomon Shung, and Bob Kopp, we set up this climate impact lab that has really tried to go beyond uh, uh, in, in build a empirically founded social cost of carbon is maybe the way to say it. I want to turn to your work in the wor- in the world of environmental economics and policy scholarship. But there's one thing I do want to I just want to point out. It was like an eye-opening moment uh, that I think helps see the connective tissue between uh, working on the U.S. government social cost of carbon and, and, and research. So what I I had actually written a couple papers about the impacts of climate change before I went to uh, uh, work in government. And I would say they were careful econometric studies of the impacts of project, trying to project the impacts of climate change on, say, U.S. agriculture or on U.S. mortality. And I thought, whoa, you know, this is, and I think inside the world of, uh, acad- you know, uh, academia, they were like, those were real advances. Uh, but what I found in government is like how, they were so far off the mark of the question that was being asked. Uh, like, there needed to be a global answer. Uh, and having this very careful econometric study of one sector in one economy in the world was not super useful for answering the big question. Uh, and I don't think I had seen, uh, I don't think I'd seen that so clearly before. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a natural connection to my asking you to reflect on um, not just your scholarship, but the scholarly world, because I, I assume, Michael, that you've seen some significant changes in the scholarly world of environmental economics since your 1998 PhD degree, which is, you know, that's that's more than two decades ago now, although I'll still think of you and will always think of you as a very young man. Um, so what <laughs> Less change- and less true every second. Yeah, well, indeed, for all of us. So, so what changes in the scholarly world of environmental economics stand out to you? Can you comment on, you know, what's the most prominent change or trend you've seen? I I think uh, the most prominent change has been that there were a series of questions that we could only answer with assumptions. Uh, and we now have data and techniques and computing power uh, that let us answer them. And uh, empirically and the answers have often been surprising not always sometimes they're kind of what we thought uh, and I, I think that has you know I, I, I'm gonna we have a common friend who I don't want to implicate uh, uh, who said to me and I think it's like maybe the I don't even know if they meant it as a compliment I think they did said to me once you know the thing about you Michael is uh, 
I don't know the answer uh, to the question you posed in your paper until I read the paper. Uh, and I think that's, that's not something special about me. That's like, now we've got data and the world is confusing place and there's, as we would like to say here at Chicago, frictions and all kinds of market imperfections that mean that our first order intuition is not always going to be right. Uh, and I think I think that's the biggest change. Uh, but, you know, I, I would like to turn the question back at you. What, how do you think it has changed in the last 25 years? You have a good perspective on all this. Well, so I think that that's a big part of it. There, There is obviously, uh, if you were thinking more broadly, it's in terms of relying more on empirical evidence, both because of the availability of the empirical evidence and then the development of techniques that lead people to be able to do a better job of identification of what that empirical evidence can tell us. And then the scope has changed, but the scope has also narrowed. And what I mean by that is that more and more environmental problems were falling within environmental economics, but over the past decade, there's been tremendous focus on the economics of climate change policy. This leads me to want to ask you about your own research and writing. I know this is asking, like asking you to identify your favorite child, but what's the one research publication? If it can only be one, what's the one publication that you are just most proud of? Yeah, so I have three children. <laughs> so let's start there. I love uh, all three of them equally. Uh, uh, pride is a deadly sin, so I'm going to try not to say proud. But uh, here is a problem that I worked on, I'm going to say, for 15 years. And I, I feel like got you know made great progress on. Uh, I, back to when I was in graduate school, was very interested in uh, what were the impacts of air pollution on people's health. Uh, and uh, the problem is most of the data we had were like, uh, did you die today? And what was air pollution today? Which is kind of like running a cigarette study. Um, yeah. Like, did you smoke today and did you die today? That's not really the right th question. The right question is how much do you smoke over your life and what is it, how does that change you? How's it dying? And so I was always like, kind of mortified that we I didn't want to write papers about adult death uh, and today's air pollution because I didn't know where those people lived and know their lifetime exposure and so that kind of pushed me to start writing papers about infant mortality because I was like okay uh, we've solved part of least a good portion of the problem here uh, which is we kind of know the infants all even through uh, the prenatal period like we know their lifetime exposure uh, but that's not the answer to the most interesting question the most interesting question is what is the impact of lifetime exposure uh and so i just carried that around and was you know writing papers here and there about infant mortality uh but i was like i've got to find a way i just have to be able to find a way to get at this bigger question uh and then one day uh, i learned about this very very idiosyncratic policy uh in china which is dating from the planning period when there was a much less wealthy country than it is now. Uh, and they just didn't have enough money for to provide winter heating for everyone. Uh, and so they drew a line across the middle of the country uh, and pretty arbitrarily uh, and said, if you live north of this line, we're going to build you uh, heating units for your apartment buildings, with little boilers, uh, and we're going to give you free coal. And if you live south of the line, you are out of luck. There's, it, there's no coal, there's no heating unit. It's like there's going to be no heating. Uh, and I thought, uh, and, and this dated to a period when there was basic migration was basically illegal in China. Uh, 
And so if you could know where people were today, you knew where they were for their whole lives. Uh, and so the idea of this was to compare uh, people who were uh, born and lived just to the north of the river, who faced very, very high levels of air pollution, uh, to people who lived just the south, who also faced high levels, but not nearly as high. Uh, and it's in, uh, you know, it's called a regression discontinuity technique. And so I, I don't know, that's like a problem I carried around for a long time. And I, I, I feel like I've now written a, a couple papers based on that. Uh, and was eventually able to make some progress on it. Now, you know, something that stands out nowadays, or and perhaps for the past several years, is that there has been increasing attention in both the scholarly world of environmental economics and certainly in the policy world of environmental policy, and I'm thinking of the U.S. government, to distributional equity in the form of the phrases environmental justice on the benefit side or the damages side and just transition on the abatement cost side, particularly in the context of climate change. Can you tell me what is your reaction to that increased attention? We've seen it a lot. It's, it's a, it is one contrast between the Biden years and the Obama years. And of course, there were four years between them. I think uh, I didn't see it coming, and I think it was like uh, something of a blind spot in my research, uh, and not just mine in our collective, in ours, yeah, yeah uh, collective research. And you know, it doesn't take like uh, you know a brain surgeon to recognize that uh, a dollar of damages to uh, Jeff Bezos is a lot less meaningful than a dollar of damages to people who are living at relatively low income levels. Uh, and uh, somehow we just kind of been skipping that. I don't quite know why, but we have been. Uh, and so I think it was really important reawakening or I don't know awakening uh, to see these uh, uh, as uh, to see this as an important area. Um, I think like in all instances when they're not all, frequently when there's a new idea, sometimes it can people get a little carried away with it, and so. Uh, one thing I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, there's this now heightened focus on these environmental inequalities, and they're very important. Uh, but sometimes the level gets missed. And so, you, you know, like I was uh, recently asked, uh, a New York Times reporter called me to ask about the congestion pricing policy that they're going to, that they have for Manhattan. Uh, and the, she wanted to write a whole article basically about environmental justice. She didn't quite use that phrase. Uh, and she had found buried in, you know, the 5,232 page uh, documentation of what the likely impacts would be that uh, there would be an increase uh, in uh, particulate pollution in one particular neighborhood uh, in New York. Uh, and so then I was like, okay, we flipped through it and got to it. And, you know, it was like 0 0.2 micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, and it was definitely happening in a more impoverished neighborhood. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but so like context was missing. Like it, it, in that same neighborhood, I went and looked up the data for her, uh, air pollution concentrate or PM 2.5 concentrations had declined by maybe eight or nine micrograms per cubic meter in the last 15 years. And it, and so those were enormous improvements for exactly those communities. And I, I just, Sometimes it's important to see the larger picture, too. 
Yeah, and context is so important. My my first interaction, actually, that I ever had with the New York Times, I think, was in 1988. And I had been quoted, but you know, I had I had I had made one of these statements on the one hand, on the other hand, typical economists, and they had only taken one of the hands. So I actually contacted the New York Times, fool that I was, and said, you know, you took it out of context, and I, and I got back a letter. This was, I think, pre probably pre email. I got back a letter, and the letter from the the editor said that. Uh, Quoting individuals out of the full context of their statements is not an error. But thank you very much for contacting us. <laughs> I never forgot that. So I, I, I want to bring this to a close by asking you one other question, one final question, about another change that we've seen. And it has to do... I'm thinking of the youth movements of climate activism. I don't know if your children are part of that. I see it among primary school kids. I certainly see it among college students. They're much more exercised over this. And I'm not thinking just of Greta Thunberg, but of broadly youth activism. Um, It was very prominent in Europe and the United States in the pre-COVID year of 2019. It came back quite a bit uh, in Glasgow at the international climate negotiations last November. Um, So I'm interested to know, um, what's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? Okay, so first, I'm just going to note the offense taken. Obviously, you don't think of me as part of the youth anymore. (laughs) Uh, So I'll just lick my wounds quietly about that. Okay. Uh, These youth movements have been incredibly successful in my view in raising political consciousness in ways and it's hurtful to myself but and maybe even hurtful to you in ways that cold-blooded cost-benefit analysis don't somehow don't seem to hit the mark right uh and i give them a lot of credit for that uh really a lot of credit in getting people's attention focused on it uh and you know politics is a tricky game i don't claim to understand it uh, with perfection and or anywhere near perfection and I, I, I just give them a lot of credit uh, a second reaction is I do not think that the right way uh, to confront climate change is by treating it as a moral issue uh, or as an issue that is beyond economics uh, I think it's a really interesting economics question it has all kinds of subtleties but I do not think that the tools of cost-benefit analysis and or economic analysis uh, are inappropriate for climate change. And so I don't like that thread that is uh, running through that activism. Well, naturally, that certainly warms my heart. Uh, I feel similarly. I mean, a question in my mind, and I don't have the answer to this, is both in terms of the degree of youth activism and the nature, as you were just saying, of the youth activism, what will happen to these people over time? Is it going to be an age effect and people becomes more conservative or they change as they get older? Or is this a cohort effect and the people that are now outside demonstrating at the climate negotiations will be inside negotiating 10, 15, 20 years from now? And I, I don't have a clue. To be determined. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I, I do think a real game changer has been that we can see the fingerprints of climate change now in ways mm-hmm. that we couldn't 10 or 15 years ago. I think. Absolutely correct. And so I think that it agitates them, it agitates me, uh, and I think 
that's really important. And, you know, I guess one other macro issue that I would say that I think is part of the reason they've been gaining traction is no matter what they said uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, it was still going to be very, very expensive uh, to, to deal with climate change. And, like, we got some really good draws in the sense that the delta, the difference between the low carbon energy sources, not all of them, but several of them, and the fossils has started to shrink quite significantly. And so I think the two things that we can see the fingerprints and that it's not as economically challenging uh, a, a bar to jump over have kind of come together in a way that has maybe in a reinforcing way uh, helped with the youth activism, which is like, it, it's not in, we don't have only infeasible responses. I think that's absolutely correct. And it's a note of optimism on which uh, I'm going to bring the conversation to a close by saying, thank you very much, Michael, for taking time to join me today in this conversation. Uh, my great pleasure, and I'll just note how kind you were not to raise the Chicago White Sox, which has been a source of great depression for me this summer. Yeah, but I wouldn't dare do that because of how the, my own team, the Boston Red Sox, are performing this year. So uh, our guest today has been Michael Greenstone, the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.